You are listening to Studying Pixels, a podcast on game studies and video game culture. I'm Stefan, I'm a game studies scholar from Germany. I'm Dan, a Japanese scholar from Texas. And you can find us every Sunday on studyingpixels.com and wherever you get your podcasts. Today we're going to talk about ludonarrative dissonance. I think this is one of the early concepts that I encountered in my study of video games roughly like 10 years ago. It's one of those terms that always pops up. It's something that I remember seeing not 10 years ago, but just in the discourse, I say discourse, online YouTube videos. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe about five or six years ago is when I really started noticing it. Mm, yeah, it's a term that's been floating around for quite a while. And what it basically means is a dissonance between a game's story on the one hand and the gameplay on the other hand. It is the typical scenario when you play a game and the game tells you that your protagonist, the character that you're playing is virtuous, is maybe trying to start over with a clean slate. And then you go into the gameplay and what you do is just killing like hundreds, sometimes thousands of people <laughs> while the game keeps insisting that you're like this innocent or good character. And this is the sort of dissonance that you would experience where you would feel like, well, but isn't he kind of supposed to be a good guy? But then all of these people that I've killed, did I really necessarily have to use the grenade launcher? On them, you know? <laughs> uh, it's getting in the way of becoming a better person that I have, as you say, a thousand dead bodies at my back. <laughs> <laughs> it's like normally the village folks in the game world, they should be like, avoid this guy. <laughs> <He's> like, <laughs> you should see the village where he's been last. <laughs> the hero, hes he, it's very strange. He breaks into my house. He breaks all of my pottery and steals my money. But I suppose he's a good guy. <laughs> <laughs> stealing is also a really excellent example, I think, because I experienced this in playing Dragon Quest XI fairly recently. <laughs> where you just, yeah. You're kind of like the luminary, you're the savior, and people really depend on you. And then you're coming into an area where people are suffering, and the first thing you do is you go into their houses and you take everything <laughs> you, take you can. Everything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, ah, some leather cloth, this shall be mine. <laughs> uh, but it's it's funny because I think that this is something that everyone has experienced, whether in a nitpicky way or in a, well, that's kind of strange way. And I think that uh, typically in my experience, and this may be, I, I would imagine this is different for you, Stefan, but when I hear about it on YouTube videos or podcasts or, you know, more colloquial kind of discussions, it's usually referred to in a negative light, that it's something that it's either a mistake, it's not something that's uh, planned or programmed properly, like it shouldn't be there, basically. And that is exactly the question that we're going to discuss today. We're going to explore the subject of ludonarrative dissonance in general, and then we're going to talk about whether it is something that's inherently bad, whether it is something that game developers should necessarily avoid, or whether there's maybe also some kind of creative potential or potential for constructive interpretation in there. In order to do that, we're going to discuss an article. So this episode is basically, it's kind of a reading episode, but not really. Like you, you out there, you don't have to be worried. Like you don't have to think that you have to read an article first now before listening to this show. We're going to walk you through the argument of said article. And that one is an article titled A Game of Twisted Shouting, Ludo Narrative Dissonance Revisited by Pavel Grabacic and Bo Camp Walter. It was published in the Game Studies journal Eludamos in 2022. 
And you can find the article linked in the show notes if after listening to this episode, you might be curious about reading on. Before we go into the discussion, though, let me briefly remind you that if you want to help us make this happen, because it, of course, takes some time, you know, reading the stuff, putting the notes together, assembling our thoughts, because normally they're all over the place. <laughs> if you want <laughs> to support us in help making this, this happen, then you can do so by joining Studying Pixels Plus, where you can find all of our episodes entirely ad-free, a lovely sticker, and monthly plus episodes. If you're curious about that, feel free to go to studyingpixels.com plus to find out more. 
because in Bioshock, of course, there's an important twist in the ending. That's probably what you are referring to, right? Towards the end of the game, there's a twist. Maybe we can spoil this here because Bioshock is an old game. And I think if someone truly cares about the story of Bioshock and wants to be surprised by it, then please, by all means, there was some years <laughs> to check it out. <laughs> You've had your time. Yeah. You've had your time. <laughs> so uh, you, the twist at the end of Bioshock is that you've been under mind control, if I recall correctly, and that mm -hmm. there was a specific sentence, um, would you kindly, which was often included or always included in the instructions that you received. Would you kindly do this and that? And then you as a player fell into place and did it because it is part of the game's objectives to do so. And I would say that the the overall narrative point is summed up in another line, which is by one of one of the antagonists, arguably an antagonist, who says uh, a man chooses a slave obeys, which I think is kind of the thematic through line of it. So that dissonance that Hawking is pointing out is not something that's wrong with the narrative necessarily, but actually a brilliant mesh of what you're doing ludically versus what's happening narratively and making a point that, I mean, that's why we're still talking about Bioshock <laughs> to this day. <laughs> yeah, an incredibly influential video game. Absolutely. Now, dissonance itself as a term is something that's, of course, lent from musical theory uh, because in music, a dissonance is basically if you have a, a harmony, it's called harmony, literally, like a sequence of notes or a chord that plays different notes together, then usually you want it to sound harmonious. Uh, however, if you play a note that doesn't quite fit into the scale, then it creates a dissonance. It like kind of just is like a wave that's sent through the entire thing and makes it sound off kilter. It's also where the term uh, discord comes from, right? Like this idea of chaos or something is, something is off, something is wrong. It doesn't mesh. It's not how you expect things to go. There's something that's pointing out a problem. Exactly. And uh, pointing out a problem, but I found this link to musical theory very interesting because it tells mm. us something already about ludonarrative dissonance. Because in music, a dissonance is actually not uncommon at all. Uh, there is, we would, for example, um, you know, uh, in blues music or jazz music, there are a lot of blue notes, notes that fall in between the actual scale and would, that would be considered in classical music to be, um, you know, outside of the regular harmony, but still they sound cool. And uh, for that reason, they've kind of been established. There's a whole history on blue notes, of course, and I can't go into that too much here, but uh, <laughs> it's a deliberate dissonance. And we're not even talking about necessarily like, you know, serious music, like musicians who do like, you know, 12-tone music and, and this kind of stuff that's very, you know, very cerebral. But even music that sounds good, even music that you would find in clubs, for example, if you listen to something like uh, Skrillex or something. <laughs> yeah. Like club music, they often in include dissonances in their music. And from that, we can take away that a dissonance is maybe not necessarily something that needs to be smoothed out. I think I, I love that example of uh, blues and jazz because even in, even in more mainstream music, like if you think of uh, think about a, a film score, when something is going really well, you may have a harmonious melody that's playing where everything 
in no uncertain terms, feels right. And I just used air quotes <laughs> to say feels right where the music is going well. But then maybe something bad happens and the wrong note, quote unquote, is played. And that's not a mistake. That's deliberate to make you feel that something is wrong. So I think dissonance gets a bad rap because it sounds negative, but it's often used purposefully to tell a really good story. Yeah, you would have in a horror film these anxious violins that are playing like uh, very dissonant notes that usually don't fit together. Like you wouldn't necessarily find this in Bach, uh, these, yeah. <laughs> these two notes next to one another directly. Um, although I don't want to discredit Bach here. Really beautiful compositions. Uh, <laughs> but, but yeah, you would find such dissonances used to productive effect. And linguistically, you already hinted at that. Um, it is a contradiction between two different types of sentences. We got narrative sentences on the one hand, and we've got ludic sentences on the other. Now, Grabacic and Walter, they use a really compelling example with GTA 4, I think. They basically point out that... So, in GTA 4, you play uh, Nico Bellic, an immigrant who comes to the United States to realize the American dream, basically, and to get away from the war and the trauma in his home country. And he's kind of basically spurred on by his cousin, Roman, um, who makes uh, the United States seem like such an ideal country. But as he tries to wiggle his way out and to realize the American dream, he gets dragged deeper and deeper into uh, crime and uh, into all sorts of violence. Exactly what he tried to get away from. Now, what they outline in their argument is that the narrative sentence here is that Nico Bellic is a character that wants to stop violence and crime. He doesn't want to have anything to do with it. He literally wants that clean slate. But the ludic sentence is that you're in an open world that allows for all kinds of mayhem to be caused. The player might feel compelled to say, well, I get a rocket launcher, I want to use it. I want to blow up a car, you know? I can <laughs> drive onto an intersection and just ram into a police car. I want to try that. I want to do that. So, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do that, <laughs> yes. So there is a contradiction between these two sentences. Nico Bellic wants to get away from crime. The player wants to enjoy the mayhem that they can cause in this open world. And there's nothing wrong about these sentences individually. After all, we're talking about a game world, right? Uh, where the rules are different from real life. We're not talking about the debate around violent video games or how they corrupt people or something. We're merely talking about the fact that those two are clearly in contradiction with one another. And again, I think there's, there's a, a way that we kind of gravitate towards these discussions that immediately our critic brain turns on and we want to say something like, you know, I'm thinking of the late 2000s, early 2010s, fantastic video game criticism of, well, that wouldn't happen in real life or you wouldn't do this. And that's not what we're talking about. Leave that at the door and set it aflame. <laughs> what, what we're talking about is it's more interesting to think, wow, this is a medium where I have direct control over this person who I have been told is trying to do better and, and get away from these violent things. How do I square what I'm making him do with the narrative that's being presented to me? And I would say that's not a bug, that's a feature of GTA 4. It kind of tears you in two different directions. And mm. I mean, we don't know 
what the intention behind this is. We don't know whether it's an intentional contradiction that was established in GTA 4. It's also present in GTA 5, of course, um, and in many open-world games, indeed, uh, or whether it's merely due to the fact that the uh, developers, in this case, uh, Rockstar Games, wanted to realize two things at the same time. On the one hand, like a rather traditional crime drama story about a good person getting torn into bad situations. Mm. And on the other hand, the freedom and exploration that is expected of open world games. But regardless of whether it is intentional or not, it is a dissonance that is there and that must be in some way processed in the interpretation of the video game. Even while you play, you must have some kind of idea of what am I doing? I see a cutscene about Nico wanting to get away from crime and then I immediately grab a, a shotgun and start killing people randomly because I just want to see how long I can make it with the police on my tail. Yeah, it's a, it's a fun contradiction that also leads to some really, I think, great analysis of a, of a game and of a company that is known for satire, for ironic engagement with problems with the American uh, system, <laughs> more generally speaking. So it's something that, at first glance, may be something that you want to kind of brush under the rug, but I think becomes a really important talking point about a game. Yeah, and this is, of course, it's a big point. It's something that really has a major effect on the interpretation of uh, the Grand Theft Auto series. But as Grabacic and Walter illustrate, it can also happen on a much more small scale. They say, for example, quote, this can happen on a very basic level. For example, the game may make it possible for players to jump over small obstacles and then present the character in a cutscene easily making the same jump, end quote. Uh, this is like a typical scenario where you would feel like your character, I've had games where the character can jump uh, super high and where you think, wow, you know, the world is my oyster. And then you run into like, there's like a small fence and it's like, no. Mm -mm. Can't do it. Can't yep. do that. Mm -mm. You can't do that until chapter eight when you have yeah. to go near that fence. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it also relates, of course, to a problem that is um, that just comes with video games, and that is the player-avatar relationship. Because this is very specific to video games. It doesn't happen in linear media such as films um, or TV shows. Because in video games, you have the issue that there's a twofold relationship between the player and the protagonist slash avatar. On the mm. one hand, the protagonist is a character, a often more or less fleshed out character that is part of a fiction and that has a literal character, attributes, things they desire, their own goals. Just like when you would read a book and you would read about it like, you know, Captain Nemo, and then you get to know this character and so on. On the other hand, though, the protagonist is an avatar. It is basically an extended tool to for the player to interact with the game world. So it's always a kind of double-bind relationship that uh, exists between player and avatar slash protagonist. Mm. And it's always something that, I mean, going back to Bioshock, which I think is maybe the, uh, certainly the mainstream Ur example of this, where you it really comes out on the forefront of, all right, who is this character that I'm controlling? Is it some, is it a person that I have agency over a tool that I'm using, 
or is it a stand-in for me? It's always something that you have to kind of dissect if you're going to look at a greater analysis of the game. You can't ignore the player-avatar relationship. Yeah, in Bioshock, it was even the case already that we are speaking about a first-person shooter, which just from the perspective that you're playing from already insinuates that it's a stand-in. The protagonist is a stand-in for you. You ought to imagine yourself being in the perspective of that character. Mm. Um, what I found an interesting observation is that Grabacic and Walter point out that this is not necessarily so. Uh, this is something that they argue has come with you know, modern control schemes, with um, the perspective of the first person. Generally, the idea that we have to create... Uh, characters as vessels for players to project themselves into. Best example, Morgan, F not Morgan Freeman, uh, <laughs> Gordon, <laughs> Gordon, Gordon Freeman, Morgan Freeman as well. Morgan Freeman, <laughs> uh, the steadfast protagonist of Half-Life. <laughs> he should voice Gordon Freeman, who doesn't have, yeah. I think, a single line in the game. <laughs> Voiced by Morgan Freeman. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he just like says like, <laughs> or something. Yeah. <laughs> he just does grunts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Gordon Freeman, the protagonist of Half Life, um, who infamously is kind of just this—he's just a guy. He's just—you uh, can see him only on the cover art of the game of Half Life. Apart from that, you know very little about him. You don't really hear his voice. This is also the reason, by the way, why in so many role-playing games, characters are not voiced. For example, um, in, in in Dragon Quest, actually which I've mentioned already, you have a traditionally silent protagonist for the most part of the game. There are very few lines that they utter. Or, of course, Link from The Legend of Zelda, who's traditionally a silent protagonist, so that you basically articulate what Link might say or think in your own head instead of having it spill it out for you. Now, this, as they say, Grabacic and Walter, is not necessarily so, because... They refer back to the golden era of the point-and-click adventure, mm. where we, you would have, for example, Guybrush Threepwood, <laughs> who is a character that exists as a character in a fiction of the game world, and he is also uh, not really directly the tool of the player. Guybrush actually turns to the camera and comments and speaks to the player. You have him do things, but he doesn't always necessarily do what you want him to do. So the control is a lot more indirect. And I would say that that I, I don't think this was intentional in Monkey Island in the sense of this will look people will look back on this analytically and pick this apart compared to other games. But I think something that's interesting about that is that there's a player avatar dissonance there where you are at once you are kind of grafting yourself onto Guybrush or other characters in a point and click, but then they step away from that and comment on it, or they make fun of you, or they make note of something in the in the game world that is meant to draw your attention to it so that you can progress. And that, in a way, also feels dissonant, but it's also such a heart of what those games are, where you almost feel like you have a partnership with the Avatar, where they're kind of guiding you along i think of a game that's uh it's another point and click that it's one of my favorites based on the harlan ellison story uh, i have no mouth and i must scream which has that element of it where the the characters that you're controlling will comment on the world 
but then it also has um am the supercomputer taunting you the entire time <laughs> as if to say neither you nor the avatar know what's going on i'm the one in control here which i think is another layer of this relationship that makes you kind of step back from the world of the game and think, okay, who's in control? What am I doing? Where am I going? It is sort of meta-referential in that sense, since the game addresses you as a player, um, a little bit like as if you were in the situation that you're watching a film and then just a character turns to the screen and just says, hey, you out there, are you enjoying yeah. the show so far? Um, this does happen. Of course, this is called a direct address. It's a parabasis, and it's very common in nowadays in, in modern and postmodern uh, cinema. Mm. But uh, it does basically point out that you as a player are not the avatar it does deliberately introduce this sort of disconnect. I think this is an interesting point because it shows that this idea of us as players thinking of ourselves as being the protagonist is not a necessity. It doesn't even necessarily mean that the game is good or bad. Um, for example, there is such a game like The Last of Us, uh, which or, the last was, or even an example that I really like as well as Firewatch. Mm. Um, both of these games are infamous for their endings in which they deliberately disappoint or frustrate the player. Because as a player, you don't get the ending or you don't get your character to do what you might want them to do. And that can feel very frustrating because you're used to in games being the person that's in control that makes the decisions. See, for reference, the Telltale games, where it's all about, you know, you making the choices, you're designing the world. You are basically dictating what happens and what does not happen. And I think this kind of disconnect of saying, like, you as a player, you are not Joel from The Last of Us. Joel is a character with his own mind. Or in Firewatch, you are not Henry, and you don't have complete control over the situation, and you have to live with that. It makes for a very compelling point that invites this kind of acceptance of disconnect or dissonance. I think even going back to the Nico Bellic uh, example, if you go into GTA 4 saying, I'm going to roleplay this game as Nico, then you're going to feel very torn <laughs> when you want to engage with the sandbox because you're you're thinking, well, I want this guy to... I want him to progress as a person, you know? And I think even in that way, there's this disconnect between player and avatar that feels really palpable that may just be the theme of the game. It would be really interesting to deliberately play some games in the context of role-playing, mm. um, where, for example, you play... Um, if you play uh, Legend of Zelda, Ocarina of Time, where you say, no, I, I'm not going to destroy all of the pots in this house and get the rubies because I don't want to harm that person. And so I take it seriously. I want to be a good guy. These village people have suffered for long enough. I'm not going to ruin their homes. <laughs> it would be a very different engagement with the game because suddenly you take everything very seriously. And it may actually, it, it may actually uh, improve your enjoyment of certain lines when people say, oh yeah, he's the hero. He, thank you for all your help. Because then you, you have a clear conscience because <laughs> you didn't steal all their money. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it, it amplifies it in that sense, but it also takes the kind of just expressive freedom uh, away from it a little bit, I feel. True. Because mm. the, 
this dissonance, this um, awareness of saying, I'm of, of course, I'm aware that when I thrash these pots in Legend of Zelda, that that doesn't, isn't considered to be in, cons uh, in contradiction to me being a hero. I know that if, if the character who lives in that house would then turn around and would be like, say, oh my God, what are you doing to my pots? Uh, <laughs> then you would probably quickly stop doing that, but uh, unless it's just a joke, which it often is. I, I actually have a story about this. Um, Maddie, my fiance, uh, stopped playing Wind Waker because there's a point where you can go into kind of a fancy house and you can destroy all the pots. And then if you do that, the owner of the house comes out and says, what have you done? Pay me my money. And you have to give up all of your rupees. And she was so upset that she had done that, that she stopped playing Wind Waker. Oh, that's really sweet, I must <laughs> <Right>? say. <laughs> it is really so, sweet. There you go. Sometimes it can really affect you. <laughs> <laughs> well, coming back to the subject of ludonarrative dissonance, um, Grabarczyk and Walter, they then look into how developers deal with ludonarrative dissonance, and they point out that there are basically three ways to deal with it. The first one is, you can try and make games as flexible as possible. Uh, that way, you would give players as much agency as you possibly can, and it would you would try to accommodate for all of the potential actions that they could do. For example, if you have a game like Detroit Become Human by Quantic Dream, it is a game in which you... It's a choice-based game. You're making the choices for all of the characters, and you're determining the flow of the story. And... Quantic Dream clearly tried to anticipate all of the possibilities, all of the possible things that players might want to do, and they tried to incorporate it into the game so that the dissonance does ideally not even arise. That's the ideal scenario then. So it's a prevention strategy, basically. Which I think is very difficult to do. <laughs> yes. Just because if you're looking for ways to break a game or break a game's immersion, you're going to find them. And so I think that it's it's pretty difficult to completely give agency over to the player. I think that might actually be the reason why we've got games like uh, GTA V and also Red Dead Redemption, uh, Red Dead mm. Redemption 2, kind of, where you have the option to... You, you play as characters, or at least you have some characters, for example, Trevor Phillips in GTA V. They are portrayed basically as, quote, maniacs. Um, <laughs> right, right. They are the kind of character that you would choose and that would basically accommodate the player's desire to just cause mayhem because that's something that Trevor would do. So what they do is kind of, they take these ludic sentences and these ludic desires that players may have and they incorporate it into the game's logic and into the narrative logic. That's just who Trevor is. He does that uh, in order to reduce the dissonance which I think is a really smart way to do it. Because yeah. if you have a character that you can basically justify anything they're doing, then you're going to have a hard time finding dissonance. <laughs> exactly, exactly. That's just how Trevor acts. Now, mm. the second strategy is trying to make games as linear as possible. It's basically the opposite. It's going all out on narrative. Giving players, quote, little to no control over any in-game decisions, end quote. It means that if players have to follow the game in a linear fashion, just like they would in the case of a story, 
in a book or in a film, then no dissonance can occur because they don't have the option to do something that would be inconsistent with the story. And this, I think, is something that is equally, well, not difficult to do, but uh, it's, it's tough. It's a tough decision to make because if you have a, if you have a fully linear game, but a protagonist who's described as being super powerful or has these incredible abilities, or maybe as you mentioned before, we see them do something in a cutscene that you can then not do in the gameplay. It, it becomes really frustrating at a certain point because you think to go back to our jumping example, okay, well, if she can jump over this gap or if she can jump over this cliff in the cutscene, but then I can't hop over a tiny gap or a fence because that's not the way the game wants me to play it. I'm frustrated. That doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, you need to be really careful and deliberate about doing something like that. You then have to consider every single possibility and basically try to keep it always straight on that linear path. I will say maybe it's uh, the case in something like, you know, in walking simulators. Mm, um mm-hmm. This is something where I would say it could be kind of like the epitome of that strategy. Because if you have... Okay, well, I named Firewatch earlier as a counterexample. But (laughs) let's say more traditional walking simulators like Gone Home, for example. Or Mm. What Remains of Edith Finch. Where you basically follow down a linear narrative and you explore. But you can't do anything that's out of the ordinary. You can't jump over a fence because you can't jump. Uh, and that's not anything that the character would do. So why would you implement it? You know, and just basically really constraining things to the very narrative. An example that I've, I always come back to uh, because I find it so endlessly interesting is the Final Fantasy 13 series. Because those games are, there's so much in them to talk about. But just looking at the first game, uh, it's jokingly referred to as Final Hallway 13 because it is just a straight linear path. But that is a case where I think you come around to the ludonarrative dissonance in that game because the whole narrative is that these are characters that are absolutely controlled by fate. There's no, like, they, they are told time and time again that they cannot break away from this. And we even see examples of people breaking away from their objective or completing their objective, and there's no real difference between the two. So to me, that's a game that kind of finds its way into having a really good point, but you don't get there until the end. And so the entire time, it's really frustrating that on the one hand, you have these super powerful abilities, but you're confined to walking a straight line for most of the game. Maybe this would be a good example even for the third strategy, Because as a third strategy, I mean, you can, well, let me first summarize. You can, of course, try to make the game as flexible as possible to avoid dissonance, or you can try to make it as linear as possible to avoid dissonance. Or you can, that's the third one, try to embrace ludonarrative dissonance and accept that to some degree, ludonarrative dissonance can be part, a legitimate part, and an enjoyable part of the experience of play. This would maybe be something that uh, you would experience while playing Final Fantasy Thirteen, where you think all this time, oh, it's so frustrating, why can't I go left and right? And then you even bring in your own gaming literacy and you think, I used to be able to do this in the other Final Fantasy games. Yes, yeah. When did I get my airship? <laughs> 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 and then 
you try to basically, as a developer, you try to, to basically tie it into the narrative by making it about inescapable fate. It's an interesting observation because we could do a whole episode on those 13 games, but I think that that is a that is a series that in retrospect, when everything is said and done, 13, 13, 2, and Lightning Returns, it has this blend of this third example that Grabarchik and Walter bring up, which is you are coming at that with a few things. There's the the narrative sentences that the games are providing you, but then there are the ludic experiences that you've had, as you mentioned, Stefan, with previous Final Fantasy games, the games in that series in particular, your expectations of where you're supposed to go, to the point where after about, you know, 190 hours of Final Fantasy 13, you think, I think I get what they were saying. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, I didn't get what they were saying, but I didn't play it for 190 hours. I'm sorry. I played it till the credits rolled and I remember that I was uh, properly disappointed by it. Although I think I was also a little bit, um, my enjoyment was a little bit tempered by my expectations because I, you just expect it to be a Final Fantasy game. So you think it must check all of the boxes, but in actuality, it is part and parcel of the series itself to subvert the expectations and to say, no, we're just going to go do something different. It's Final Fantasy. We experiment, you know? I think I have thought about the 13 series more than the other games in the series precisely because of this dissonance that they use. It stuck with me, and I always want to talk about it in some way, shape, or form because there's, it comes from a place of rage and frustration, but then it always dovetails into, oh, maybe they did something smart actually <laughs> yeah and maybe sometimes when i think back to my experience of final fantasy 13 i think um maybe the important question is not so much is this a good final fantasy game in the sense of does it check the boxes that all the other games did but rather is it a good game yeah uh, and then suddenly it opens up a little bit and i understand okay there are lots of linear games and maybe there's a point to the linearity of all of it Yes, which I think that's the key, right? Maybe there's a point. <laughs> it sounds it sounds silly to say it that way, but I think that's what this third example is kind of getting at, which is something that we aim to do all the time when we talk about game stuff on, which is, all right, I, I really didn't like this, so my next step was, was there a point to it or was it a mistake? <laughs> okay, I can see already that there's a Final Fantasy 13 Plus episode coming up here. <laughs> <laughs> why dan has been thinking about final fantasy 13 for 15 years <laughs> yes why Dan is the only one who's been thinking about <laughs> before we dive too deep into final fantasy 13 though let's take a short break and then we will be right back to explore the concept that grabacic and walter call the ludo narrative shouters 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. All right. So just before we move on from our Final Fantasy 13 discussion, I want to say this because we should do an episode about it because I have a lot to say. My favorite sentence in the English language is Final Fantasy 13 2 ends on a cliffhanger. <laughs> There's so many if you just if you look at it as a whole it's funny. Every word is funny. <laughs> the concept of it. Those games I have a lot to say about them. So we'll uh, we'll keep talking about Ludo Narrative Dissonance, but stay tuned for the Final Fantasy 13 episode. Yeah. Final Fantasy 13 and why they just couldn't stop making them. I, I think <laughs> it's because the one of the developers was in love with Lightning, the main character. Mm, yeah. I think that was I think that was why, but also, I, I can They also had research. very profitable fashion deals with the, That's with the characters. Yes. <laughs> That's mm. true. Lots of lots of chains and whips. Okay, but actually we wanted to get into ludonarrative shouter figures. Yes. Now, this, that is actually, this was a really cool concept. Yeah, this is a really cool concept. It's also um, a like original and new concept that's proposed mm. by Grabacic and Walter. So what they say on page 17 is the following. It's a longer quote. Our proposal is that shouters should be understood as voiced proxies of ludonarrative dissonance. They steer the player in certain directions, not, and this is critical, away from the cracks and crannies of ludonarrative dissonance, but quite the opposite, towards them. Shouters are tourist guides, equipped with a metaphorical megaphone and assigned with the task of leading players to the dangerous but fragile places within the game. End quote. I love this idea, and it's something that... Uh we've kind of danced around a little bit in previous episodes about open world games because it's almost a necessity with all of these choices and all of this content, you kind of do need someone to corral you to keep you away from these issues that you might be thinking of, or I should say the frustrations that may come out of ludonarrative dissonance. 
yeah that might guide you away from them or even into them like um i think the typology that they open up here they got basically got three types of shouters teacher director and developer mm. and it is a little bit inconsistent as to with some of them i wonder are they really shouters of ludonarrative dissonance um so mm. first of all we've got the teacher the teacher they say tutors the player how to operate the game um this would be for example the case if you play call of duty modern warfare they list and um then you've got a character that introduces you to the basic mechanics, for example. That's a shouter. And I would 100% agree that that is an excellent term. It's a shouter because it's kind of a proxy, in this case, of the game developer that teaches you how to play the game within the framework of the fiction. I don't think it's too much of a thing related to ludonarrative dissonance necessarily. Although I, I could make the argument that a tutorial character like a teacher is less dissonant than a pop-up of a tutorial that you have to read explaining how something works right so a game that has maybe an intro scene where you're being kind of taught the ropes or um, we recently played hogwarts legacy moments of literal teachers in that game explaining how to use different spells compared to say just a pop-up or a book that you have to read that explains how to use them. That's kind of a way to integrate something that used to be part of older games that felt kind of distancing that now feels like, okay, I, I see that this is part of the world. Yeah, well, basically if you have a pop-up and it says press X to do this, um, then this, of course, it disrupts the player avatar or the player protagonist relationship and puts you into the degree or into the dimension of player avatar. Like, now I'm playing as a player, now I'm not interacting with an actual character. Whereas if you have, uh, let's say, a sergeant in Call of Duty that says, like, now, now jump over that obstacle, and then you just see a brief pop-up that's just, like, an X mm. button, Yeah. Uh, then that's kind of, like, you could say a minimally invasive measure to keep the connection between player and avatar slash protagonist intact. It's more dynamic. It feels like it doesn't it doesn't take you out of it as much. You know what what I just thought of is the phrase, oh, I'm in control again. You know when you play games and you think, oh, it's I gotta pick up my controller because this cutscene is over <laughs> and you think it's time for me to learn something. I think that a good teacher character will make it so that you never think, oh, I have to play again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, though it can also be part of the ludonarrative dissonance in the sense uh, when I'm thinking of, of modern warfare, I remember that in the mm. text they brought up this example and that is ludonarrative dissonance if you are um, let's say in any kind of you, let's say you're in a building, you're playing Call of Duty and you're like in a building, in a single player mode in the campaign mode, and then your fellow soldiers, your comrades or your sergeant is basically egging you on to move to get going, mm, it's like mm -hmm. all, it's in a rush, it's in a hurry, we have to move. But the game itself, the ludic sentences, look around for collectibles. Because there might be like some kind of optional medals to find that give you like extra XP. So you have to ignore <laughs> the teacher that teaches you how to play the game and keeps you on the, on the course. And instead just do what is significant in some kind of other gaming relevant system. I, I recognize we have, we have two others that maybe... This may actually fall into the next one, the director 
idea, namely that they steer the player in the right direction according to the narrative. I, I'm So I'm playing the Resident Evil 4 remake, and something that I was thinking about while reading this article is the merchant character, the what are you buying, that guy. Yeah, He will, in this game, before you reach a point of no return, he will be programmed to say, you might want to finish up any errands you have, stranger. You never know what you might regret. And he only says that if you're about to reach a point where you can't go back to that area. So would you say that that's the director idea that they're kind of getting into, where it's like, we're, I'm going to subtly hint that something is about to happen without telling you exactly, hey, you're going to go into a boss fight now? Uh, I, think, I think it's a kind of overlap between the teacher and the director, because mm. it does have a narrative element, which would be part of the director, where it basically tells you, like, you know, basically this is a significant event that comes next in the narrative. But it also has a teaching element because it tells you something about the gaming, the game as a system. It tells you like, hey, mm, if you true. go past that point, then you will not be able to return. So if you have any side quests, wink, wink. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I appreciate that. I really like these things. I really like when a game properly and clearly tells me that I'm about to hit a point of no return. So that like most JRPGs handle this pretty well when they let you know. Um, hey, you know, maybe your party, maybe someone will say that, or maybe a kind of other NPC will come up and will say, hmm, just so you're aware, if you're going through that now, then it might be that you can't turn back for quite a while, so you might want to finish up any unfinished business. Um, it's very charming. It is, yeah. I think every every JRPG I've played in the last 10 years, at, at some point before the final boss, somebody will say, maybe we should uh, go back and visit some places before we press on. <laughs> Maybe that's exactly the third category where these things fall into place. It's the developer, mm. where the characteristics, they say, is a combination of teacher and director with an ironical twist, they say. And as a prime example here, they point out the Stanley Parable, which is a video game about video games, essentially. Yes. It's a video game based on, I think, the Half-Life engine, or Half-Life 2. And um, it's uh, it started out as a mod, and you basically play as Stanley, an office worker, who suddenly finds that everyone has disappeared. And then a narrative uh, voiceover appears that basically tells Stanley, but also you as a player, things that you should do, but in past tense, as if they already happened. It's like, Stanley goes through the door on the left. Or, uh, sorry, that is not correct. Stanley, Stanley went, went through the door Stanley on the left. Stanley went to the door on the left. But in actuality, you're just standing in front of these two doors. And then you can make a choice of whether you obey to the narrator and you go through the left, or whether you go through the right, basically subvert the narrative expectation. And then it is kind of, that's the whole pleasure of it. You can see how the narrator struggles to kind of reinterpret your actions so that it makes sense. But in the last moment, Stanley thought better of it and went through and went the right. went through the door on the left. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> or they'll, they'll railroad you into, all right, here's another room. And then he'll say something like, thinking better on it, he did go through the left door. <laughs> <laughs> it is very fun and very charming. And I'm still not sure, this is what I struggle with with this article quite a lot, actually, where the ludonarrative dissonance is there. Because... Mm. I get that. I mean, Stanley Parable is a super meta video game. As I said, it's a video game about video games. It deliberately 
uh, breaks with the fiction. It deliberately draws you in as a player. It references other video games, like Minecraft and so on. But when it comes to the narrative and the gameplay, they are, I would say, very much in sync. As in, the narrative is inviting being chaotic, being subversive, being experimental, and the gameplay reflects that. So I don't really see where the ludonarrative dissonance is. Well, this is where I struggle with their the part of their definition for this developer uh, teacher, or shouter, rather, where they deliberately include the ironical twist. I would think that the ironical twist negates the dissonance, because that's the point, right? I, uh, to me, ludonarrative dissonance is something that is, it's, it's unavoidable because of the way that the narrative and the gameplay are set up respectively. But I, another example that I'm thinking of is uh, Toby Fox's work with Undertale and Deltarune. You could maybe argue that certain things, like Toriel, the tutorial character, is very dissonant in how she explains the game to you. But then I would also say that the meta level on top of that is that Toby Fox is actually commenting on tutorials, which strengthens the character Toriel when you realize that she is so protective because of X, Y, and Z reasons. That's why she's this character. So that doesn't seem dissonant. That seems very pointed and very, uh, very deliberate. So the, the irony is where they kind of lose me with this one, because if you're being ironic, you're being deliberate. Exactly. I have exactly the same thought. If we take Toriel as an example, then my mind, of course, wandered first to the intro of Undertale, where Toriel takes you through the motions and kind of, you, this is the section where you learn the basics of the game. And um, then at the end of this tutorial, you get, you fight Toriel, right? Yeah. And the thing is that what you don't know at this point is that if you want to complete a perfect run, then you ought not to defeat her. But you have to spare her, even though multiple times you have to do it and it doesn't seem to do anything. It seems to have no effect. It seems like the game wants you to think that you have to defeat her, but you actually don't. Now, but this is not... This is also something where I get I get the mind games that, that are being played there and I get the subversion the subversive play into saying, no, I'm going to keep sparing and hoping something happens. But I would say it is not dissonant. It is actually quite harmonious between the narrative and the gameplay. Mm. Especially, that's a really great example because I was just thinking before the, the, the tutorial with Toriel, there's the moment with Flowey where Flowey gives you a tutorial on how the fighting system works by tricking you into getting hit by one of the bullets in the the kind of bullet um, bullet dodging mechanic that Undertale has, where he says, oh, they're friendliness pellets, run into them. Yeah. And so that sets up that you don't have a choice, that you can't, avo you can't avoid certain things. So you're primed to think in the Toriel fight, I have to kill her, when in reality, that's the trap that Fox is laying for you. So I completely agree. That's a point where, Maybe it feels ironic at first glance, but it's all planned for from moment one. Mm, exactly, yeah. I want to also say that uh, I want to point out one example where I disagree with uh, uh, Grabacic and Walter, and then another mm. one where I definitely do agree. So I disagree with their analysis of Manhunt. Um, 
they have got a like an elaborate analysis of Manhunt, which is in itself quite compelling. Like they are mm. right about all the points they're making about the game. Um, Manhunt is a very a dark and cynical video game. By the way, it's also one of the few games that's actually prohibited in Germany for the uh, excessiveness of violence. So you can't own a copy um, of the first Manhunt. And it is a game where you are basically, you play as a convict uh, who's about to be executed. And then you get like one last chance to live. But in order to do so, you have to obey a, uh, like a sadistic snuff film director who mm. forces you to murder people in most gruesome ways for his snuff film, right? Um, and I totally understand that if you try to interpret Manhunt. So there, there is, of course, there is a dissonance. And that dissonance, I would say, is between me and the game. It's between me saying, I don't want to do these heinous acts and the game kind of trying to lure me into doing them, rewarding me for killing people and the more violently I kill them, the more points I get. So, of course, what do I do? I try and start to kill as violently as possible because that's how the logic of the game works. However, I would argue that this is also not ludonarrative dissonance because the game's mechanics of enticing you to kill as creatively and brutal as, possibly, as possible is perfectly consistent with a narrative that tells you you're being forced to kill as violently as possible. Yeah, it's, I, I, I guess I don't see where the dissonance is. <laughs> yeah, me neither. I don't see yeah. the dissonance in it. I think that's, of course, it's a shame that we can't argue with the authors right now. Maybe we should just uh, invite them or ask them about this, whether I, they could I would love clarify. to talk with them about it. Yeah. Yes, because it's a compelling analysis. I don't want to like basically uh, tear into the article in an unqualified fashion, but I did, I do genuinely struggle to understand how Manhunt is a, uh, ludonarratively dissonant, yeah. Well, this is... Reading the analysis of Manhunt made me think about other games and made me think about... We've already alluded to kind of... Um, I guess what I would call ludonarrative dissonance by way of previous experience, right? Where you mentioned that going into Final Fantasy Thirteen, you have dissonance because of your experience... That you may have a prior experience with Final Fantasy games. So you're going into it and thinking, this doesn't gel with my kind of schema for a Final Fantasy game. So the dissonance then comes from, how are these differences that are being presented meshing with my understanding and where I am with this story as a series and not so much as a game? I think the other, the other thing that this manhunt analysis made me think of in that similar vein is if you're going into it and you're kind of thinking, Oh, there is no dissonance. It is the idea that they're kind of thinking of that you're going into this game thinking, Oh, I expect some satire. I expect some irony. I expect something to be tongue in cheek about this, but it's being presented as very straightforward and earnest. And so is that the dissonance, right? Where you go into it with these particular expectations and then it just is a straightforward torture porn game. Yeah. <laughs> and you think, oh, I don't know. I don't really know what I was supposed to get out of this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, I, I think I totally understand that Manhunt is one of these peculiar examples that dances on a very thin line of being mm. fun and being completely horrible. Yeah. Uh, because... <laughs> 
Yeah, it's, it is indeed the case. It's not like Manhunt is not enjoyable. They're not enjoyable games. For me, they are not. Um, I must say, I've never played the first one. I've only played a little bit of the second one in the context of an academic setting. Mm. Um, but also, I'm not all that interested because these games are very dark and cynical. And for my liking, they're a little bit too dark and cynical. Like it just mm. puts me in a bad mood. And so I don't want to. I don't want to engage with it. I'd rather play something beautiful. Mm, but uh, I, I get that there's like a intuitive resistance to the premises of the world of Manhunt because you don't want to do what the game wants you to do. So the best way to actually get out of this is by not playing it, I assume. Mm. That can also be legitimately be interpreted as one point of the game. However, in itself, I would regard it as a game that is very consistent, that is so consistent that it's actually uncomfortable. I agree. And I think that you, there, I, I, I don't want to dismiss this because I think there is something really interesting in the uh, meta Ludo narrative dissonance <laughs> in the sense that you're, you're going into a game with a particular agenda or thought process. And then when it conflicts with that, I think that's dissonant in and of itself. Um, my, the, what I thought of immediately was the resurgence of, uh, or not the resurgence, but the proliferation of remakes nowadays. Obviously, I'm thinking of uh, the RE4 remake, where it is deliberately playing on your expectation of the original game and doing things differently. So that's a really interesting case where I think you would only have dissonance if you've experienced the original. And that's something that I think is a a level above what they're discussing here, which I think deserves some attention but i would agree that the manhunt analysis on its face like it's a pretty straightforward game <laughs> yeah i think the the problem might be that we're i think we are stretching the term of ludonarrative dissonance too far then if we include there, there needs thing. to be something else exactly yeah because yeah. If I, th- there is there needs to be legitimate wiggle room also for something to be subversive for example mm. or mm-hmm. for something to be deliberately disappointing or subverting player expectations. And that's also perfectly fine. But uh, ludonarrative dissonance to me is more like something that's really within one game, a dissonance between narrative and uh, gameplay. Where I think, Mm. for example, they have an excellent example. We addressed GTA 4 in great detail already. And I think this is Mm. one of the, this is a great example to illustrate this because there we've got a shouter figure, which is Roman, the cousin who's already in the U.S., in Liberty City. And Roman is the kind of character that always drags Nico Bellic into the crime underworld, basically, even though he tries to get out of it. But Roman just constantly gets him into trouble in exactly the same way like the player would get him into trouble. And so there I do see how Roman is basically a proxy that lures players and the protagonists to equal degree into this dissonance. Mm. I think that that is, uh, that's such a really cool example too, because it's the idea of the shouters is, as we've discussed, the world of the game, drawing your attention to the dissonance for a purpose. So Roman is such a perfect example because bowling is never bowling with Roman. Yeah. (laughs) It's always, you want to go bowling with me? It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. he calls you on the phone. (laughs) Yeah. So for him, it, it eventually becomes this moment where you you realize, okay, if I get a call from Roman, the story's going to progress. 
and something awful is going to happen by my hand. And so it, you start to expect it when you get a call. Or they use another example um, in the Spider-Man game. This is this is a more benevolent example of it. But what we've already kind of talked about, where you reach a point of no return, where maybe the the avatar will actually say, "Oh, I, I have some time. Maybe I'll go and clean up some." They, they're basically saying, "Maybe I'll go do some side quests." Yeah. (laughs) Because you think, oh, when would I have time to do this otherwise? And that's another good example of there's so much going on in this game. I'm glad that you told me it's okay to do this now. Yeah. I'm really, I think the Spider-Man example is very instructive because Mm. it could be, of course, it could be Spider-Man. It's himself who says that, but also he receives like in the new, you know, the the amazing Spider-Man video games from 2018 and newer Mm. He receives phone calls all the time while he's like swinging through the world, and they're telling him uh, about side, qu- uh, about optional side quests that are currently happening. Like, hey, there's a robbery on this and this street. You might want to check that out. Or they are saying, uh, you know, try to focus on this one first. There's a main mission, by the way. This is like the big evil guy has just broken into the the bank. You have to get there first. You know, um, so they kind of operate as guides, mm. and I do think, like, I, this. Of course, these shouters, they kind of steer players away from the dissonance. So they are, in this sense, directors, right? Because they Mm. try to make sure that you don't dilly-dally and spend like 400 hours just basically exploring the world while apparently all this time the bad guy is still breaking into the bank, (laughs) which would make no sense. So I think that's where the shouter term works really well that they developed. There's also an important note there that there's some games that um, I think newer games are better about this, where there will be an event that you need to go and take care of, but it's not uh, described to you in a sense of this is incredibly urgent. Anything that's urgent will just happen. Whereas in Spider-Man, and again, great example from Spider-Man 2018, it's always like you get done with something and then Spider-Man will say, you know, I want you, I should probably go talk to this person. They may know something about this instead of there's a fire at the, at, you know, the <laughs> school. And I guess I'll go do side quests before I go take care of that. Yeah, because <laughs> that is exactly the typical uh, case of ludonarrative dissonance that I've Definitely. experienced a thousand times already when, you know, in The Witcher 3, Siri is abducted and you're like, oh, I need to go and save Siri. But then it's like, okay, but first. I have first, 40 hours. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> I need to become uh, the world master of this trading card game. <laughs> yes. Then I need to Priorities. Speak to, yeah, then I need to speak to every single person in that village and I need to, I don't know, visit all of the brothels that potentially uh, are in the area. <laughs> and then let's talk about the Siri business again. Um I think this is a typical case of ludonarrative dissonance, where the narrative tells you, the narrative sentences save Siri quickly, she's in danger. But the game, the ludic sentences, explore, take your time, do whatever you want, collect cars, and so on, you know? I I wanted to mention uh, two Zelda games that I think are really good about taking that kind of urgency and making a real point out of it. So... It's a sense of ludonarrative dissonance being used to full advantage to kind of 
make the point of the game. So the two games are Majora's Mask and Breath of the Wild. So both of these games have a sense of urgency, but the way that they're set up makes it feel like you're not really penalized for taking your time. So Majora's Mask does it in a sense where you're on a constant three-day loop, but you have infinite time because you can go back in time to the start of the first day. And you're never, you're, you're, you're always kind of in control of that. Breath of the Wild, on the other hand, has this setup where the calamity has already happened. <laughs> so there's no rush. Everything's kind of simmering and you don't really need to do anything in any kind of time constraint. And so both of these games use this idea of urgency to kind of imbue you with purpose for what you're doing in the game. You kind of go at your own pace. You take stock in important things differently. You know, Majora's Mask, you realize that you can't save everyone, which is a really harsh lesson. And Breath of the Wild, you learn that it's really about the beauty of the world, and that's what you're protecting. So I think that in both cases, there are shouters that will kind of steer you in the right direction, but only in the case that you're lost and you don't know what you're doing. And I think the kind of beauty of both games, and Zelda in general, but these two are really good examples, is that there are characters who will shout at you, like Navi, the fairy or uh, Tattle in Majora's Mask, um, but it's optional. <laughs> you can kind of call on them to shout at you. It's not necessarily Roman calling you and saying, we need to go do this now. <laughs> ah, but this is a really beautiful example indeed. When I think of my experience with Breath of the Wild, I just remembered mm. that w whenever you go into any kind of direction and it's like so open that it's just, you know, look at the horizon, see what interests you. But as soon as you commit to any kind of direction, you will inevitably encounter characters that will say something like, yeah, I heard that, you know, way to the west here, there's a village and they're kind of having problems about this. So this is like a subtle way of shouting. And if you go further and further in this direction, they, you will hear more and more about this. And maybe you will encounter a character that has been involved that will later be significant when you actually reach the village. And this is, I think, an excellent way to deliver these kind of shouts at the player to make sure they are always kind of acting with purpose in this world. Yeah. It's never... It never feels like you have a, a marker on the map that you have to go and meet. It's always, as you say, I, I'm thinking of it now too, there are points where clearly it's, it's scripted in the sense that if you go to this place, somebody will kind of pop up and give you an idea of what's happening way over there. But at no point are they like, and you must go now to go do yeah. this. <laughs> yeah, you can still a, turn around and get, go in the other direction if you want to. Yeah. Yeah, it's. I like what you said. It's a. It's a quiet shout. It's like a whisper yeah. shout. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, my last example that I want to bring to the table here, as we're talking about ludonarrative dissonance, is meta gaming, because um, I think a lot of ludonarrative dissonance can be caused by meta gaming, and by this I mean, for example, trophy hunting. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> it's a meta game because it's basically a. It's a, a collectibles game. Uh, propped on top of the actual game that you're playing and uh, it expects of you to do certain things that would be nonsensical or even entirely against the narrative of the game mm. um, one example that i really like because it 
pokes a little bit of fun at itself is in the Uncharted series. I think in Uncharted 3, they clicked on to the criticism of ludonarrative dissonance. Because uh, Naughty Dog had had been had received the criticism that on the one hand you've got Nathan Drake who's supposed to be a virtuous character, on the other hand you just he's a mass shoot, murderer. Yeah, <laughs> you just shoot people constantly in this game, and so I think if in Uncharted Three you reach a certain kill threshold of like a thousand kills or something, <laughs> a trophy will pop, and the trophy is called ludonarrative dissonance. It's like you've called, you've killed two thousand people. That I think is a way of basically of yeah creatively or ironically engaging with ludonarrative dissonance that's such a funny <laughs> such a funny example it reminds me of it's a a simpsons joke where one character says hey man are you being ironic right now and the other one says i don't even know anymore <laughs> <laughs> Ah, yeah. I like these kind of very conscious engagement with, with game mechanics and with metagaming. The takeaway for me is that, well, I don't agree with all of the analyses that are presented in the text. I do think that the concept of ludonarrative dissonance is still being stretched a bit too far. Like, it lift, the, the term is lifting too heavy. Um, on the other hand, though, I also want to agree with the author specifically because they their key point is, can ludonarrative dissonance be something constructive? Do we necessarily have to try and avoid it? And I would say, no, we don't have to try and avoid it. Ludonarrative dissonance can be constructive. It can inspire us to think critically about games. It can also train our gaming literacy in thinking about it and learning to identify it. And by all means... Everyone knows it's a game. Yeah. Uh, nobody thinks of this as, this must be a film. This must be as narratively consistent as we would expect. Well, a narratively consistent, yes. But we do know, of course, that as soon as we take over control over a character like Lara Croft, we know that now we are the ones that determine Lara's actions and therefore not all of the actions that she does need to be necessarily meticulously consistent. I think there is a threshold of dissonance that can be just accepted by virtue of the fact of what games are as a medium. I agree. And I think my last thought is that I really appreciated this article for opening the door to more, uh, more constructive discussion about this, this topic and this conversation, because my experience, as I mentioned at the top of the episode is usually, uh, game critics or reviewers online who use this as a really negative, uh, a negative aspect of a game. And I've always disagreed with that. And I think that this article does a great job of fleshing out, well, no, hang on. We can actually look at this and develop a uh, codification for what this means in a much grander scale. So it made me think of like we were talking about, all right, the next evolution for me is the dissonance that one may carry when they come into a game with previous gaming experience. And I think that's really important to explore, especially because uh, with all the remakes that are coming out, it's a really important conversation to have where people seem to, I think, get offended by changes that are made because of their previous experience. And that's something worth looking at. So I, I thought this was a great article. Well, thank you so very much for listening. If you wish to, you can submit your thoughts and questions to studyingpixels.com slash contact. If you want to support us, 
you know that you can do that by getting Studying Pixels Plus by visiting studyingpixels.com slash plus. Don't forget to leave a nice review on Apple Podcasts. We haven't said that in a while. And actually, I haven't even read the reviews on Apple They're Podcasts. They're all fantastic. <laughs> They're all fantastic. All splendid. Feel free to leave a five-star rating. We would much appreciate that. Thank you so very much for listening. And we'll talk again next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.